0: And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast.
1: It's empty in the
2: valley of your heart The sun, it rises slowly as you walk Away from all the fears and all the faults you've left behind The harvest left no food for you to eat You cannibal, you meat-eater, you see but I have seen the same I know the shame in your defeat Hang on a minute
3: Who
0: put you in charge? And who the hell are you anyway?
1: I'm the Doctor I'm a Time Lord I'm from the planet Gallifrey In the constellation of Custerboros I'm 903 years old And I'm the man who's going to save your
0: lives And all 6 billion people on the planet below. You do a problem with that? No.
3: In that case, I don't
0: see. Would I like really a to know.
3: Oh, my Sarah want Wobbly, timey rhyming. Oi, watch it, Man. Oi, watch it, Earth Girl. I will teach you the folly of your words, Doctor.
0: Uh, Smith, Dr. John Smith.
3: And this is Duggan. He's a detective who's been kind enough to catch me.
0: You always were an optimist, weren't you? Thank you for the compliment.
3: Hello. Mate, in six moves, Master. You! You! you.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 21 of Who True Freaks, the podcast you make wear a gimp mask and keep in the corner for those special times week. I'm one of your hosts for the show, Sean Ingle, and tonight we're continuing to bounce around the time stream, taking a look at various actors who've taken on the role of the titular character of the now 51-year-old series, Doctor Who. And this time out, we've got a twofer of sorts in the person who portrays the Doctor, as both Peter Davison and Colin Baker, for a brief moment take on the role in the final serial of davison's run the caves of andrazani yes it's political backstabbing corporate shenanigans and british villains in mexican luchador mask in this episode and to talk about this series with me tonight is who true freaks regular the irredeemable shag how's it going tonight shag
2: it is going excellent
1: And also here for the first time on the show, we have the host of numerous shows over the Bureau 42 Network, covering comic book movies, The X-Files, comic book physics, and sometimes Doctor Who. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege and pleasure to welcome to the show Mr. W. Blaine Dowler. How's it going, Blaine?
4: It's going well.
1: I'm glad to be a part of this. Now, this is your first time, obviously, well, it's not your first time on the Two True Freaks Network, but it's your first time on the Who True Freaks show. Why don't you go ahead and give us a little, uh down on your history with Doctor Who. Alright, uh, so my
4: first attempt to get into the show actually happened when I was in early elementary school. The local station started picking it up and I had you know friends who were familiar with it told me about it at school, said I would do about grade 2, second grade if you're in America. Um, sounded like my kind of thing. I tried to check it out, but the problem was that the local stations were running it seven days a week at 10 a.m. So I saw a couple episodes in the middle of one of the Tom Baker serials one weekend. Missed it the next weekend. Saw a couple episodes in the middle of one of the Peter Davison serials. And it was just the serial nature that gave them the chance for such deep storytelling. Also made it really hard for someone to watch the show if you couldn't watch it seven days a week as it was being broadcast locally. So I kind of gave up on it then, got back into it when it relaunched in 2005. So I was there for Rose from day one. And, yeah, so Christopher Eccleston was the, not the first Doctor I was exposed to, but the first one I got invested in. And it was the David Tennant era that got me drawn in so much, I figured it was time to go back and check out the classic series that I hadn't really seen. So I still have 30 stories to watch, but my collection now includes every episode of both Incarnations of Doctor Who, Sarah Jane Adventures, and Torchwood that are known to exist and are available to the public.
1: Nice. So, Very nice. So so basically you're about ready to rival Shag, at least in the uh, viewing numbers of episodes. So that's cool.
4: <laughs> for that, I've got the, the first, I think, 40 Big Finish audiobooks, and I've listened to about 15 of those. I save those for the, the mid-season breaks when I need New Who. So,
2: Awesome. You are well on your payment. way, sir. You are well on your way. Big Finish has an incredible back catalog, so enjoy those and live inside those. They're happy places to be.
4: They are. I was quite happy to see that uh, Charlotte Pollard show up in Doctor Who Legacy during their advent calendar this year.
2: Oh, cool. I did not see that. I did not see the, the calendar this year.
3: That's cool.
4: Oh, you should check it out. It's still available for a few more days at the time of this recording. So, they've got some good stuff in there. I've got all 21 Doctors and 129 Companions, all at rank 5, level 50.
3: Okay. Good lord. <laughs> uh,
1: you know, I i have not invested that much time in playing the game. I have it for my uh, Kindle and for my uh, iPod. And I try, uh, you know, I, I guess I just don't have the hang of it yet. I've It's an interesting game, but the, the random drops, I just can't seem to get them to, you know, get them to go. Now, do you play... Do you basically just play the free side? Have you ever had to pay for uh, different crystals or anything like that? Or how do you do that?
4: Um, it's actually very well designed, free to play. So the only thing that is accessible exclusively by paying for it is the fan area. Which, of those 150 characters I mentioned, gives you access to, I don't know, maybe six characters and four costumes you wouldn't otherwise have access to.
3: Okay. Okay.
4: And that's it. There are some things that you just cannot buy your way through, right? The expert levels, you've got to play. So I've, I've chosen to buy some time crystals to support them. But for most of the character development and boosting, it's just flat-out grinding because I enjoy it, so. Well,
2: I, I suck at video games. I'm absolutely horrible at them. And so I got through, I don't know, quite a bit of, game, of the game. I, I don't, you know... I probably only accumulated like five doctors uh, a total but it got to the point where I just couldn't advance any further without probably buying something so I'm like I'm out so that was my gaming experience I tried
1: yeah that was kind of the same with me I I started leveling up my characters and I was trying you know I would keep going back to certain you know to certain games to try and collect a specific uh, drop character and that character would never drop and I'd be like okay I didn't, like, throw my iPod across the room and go, I'm done with this, but I just <laughs> I just kind of put it down and said, okay, well, you know, I, I, I've got other things to fill my uh, fill my entertainment needs.
3: Yeah,
4: the Rare Drops are rare. I've been playing it since, actually, the day it was launched, and I haven't missed a daily reward since they introduced those, so.
1: Well, that's always nice. Uh, wow. Well, it's, uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a fun little game. If you're a Doctor Who fan, it's got a lot of history in it. You know, it's got a lot of neat characters, and it's a it's a simple game to learn. But it's, you know, there there is some strategy to it. If you know what kind of enemies you're going to be facing, you have to pick certain type of uh, resistance or certain type of uh, attack power that you can use. And different characters have different levels of attack power or different healing power. So it's it's an easy game to learn, but there's some complexity in it as well. So cool. The yeah,
3: blast. there is the
4: the expert levels are expert, but. In the next few days, they're actually introducing a level. Uh, They got feedback from one of their players, who's got a very young daughter who loves to watch him play it, but can't really play it herself, because it is that complex. So they're actually adding a zero experience level where the enemies do no more than one hit point damage. Nice. That will have no pink or black gems, so it's easier to make the, the match threes, and easier to build combos, so it's... You know, they got one letter and said, hey, that's a good idea, and they're building an entire level just for very young players. That's like awesome. That, yeah, that's, that's the kind of team behind it. That's I find it very easy to choose to support them.
2: That's really cool. The the last time I had any success with a Doctor Who game was Destiny of the Doctors, which was a Windows 98 game. And then prior to that was the Daleks game, which was from, my, I think, my Commodore 64, probably, which was basically Berserker. So I, uh, I just do not have the hand-eye coordination. But that sounds like an incredible team behind the game to make those kinds of changes to accommodate kids. I, I have kids myself, so I'm a real sucker for that kind of stuff. So that's fantastic.
1: Well, and it also works in the idea that Doctor Who is not only for adults or a show for adults, but it's supposed to primarily be a show for kids. And that if they're making a game based on Doctor Who, they should make levels that appeal to kids as well. So that's fun. That's great. I'm going to correct you. It should be a
2: it's a family show,
1: not a uh, kid show. Okay, there you go.
2: So it, yeah. it's it's a, it's supposed to be accessible to all ranges. So. All right. Well,
4: yeah, I, I spent uh, three years working in my... a theater through high school and university. I found there's two kinds of family entertainment. There's, you know, some movies I will choose not to name where you ask the people coming out, how was it? The kids go, that was awesome. And the parents go, the kids really liked it. <laughs> and there's some movies like, you know, your Pixar's, the, the best of your Doctor Who, where it really does entertain the entire family.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. the The, the Pixar movies especially. I don't think you can go wrong and recently the output of uh, the disney movies uh the, like, I, like we were talking about prior to this uh, big hero six i think was a movie that would appeal both to that my kids really loved and uh not only uh, not only did i enjoy my wife who came along for it she thought it was really good as well and she's kind of a hard sell on the comic book movies so the fact that it appealed to her as well is is nice so the fact that you know like i said that doctor who is making something that's appealing to you know, all age groups is, is, is a really great thing that they're out doing that. So, Cool. All right. Well, are we ready to go ahead and get into the show? I've got a – well, I don't have a synopsis written up. I uh, kind of ripped it off from the BBC website, but they put it out there, so I'm going to go ahead and use it. Are we ready to go with this? Yeah. I, just to be fair,
2: mm-hmm. so you know, um, I in order to keep the show at a certain length, I went ahead and exposed myself to Spectrox um, oh. So Raw. Uh, Spectrox, to make sure that, you know, if the show goes too long, I- I'm just going to, I'll drop off. I'll be dead. Okay, okay.
4: Well, Let us know in the blisterings. T-
1: yeah, and uh, and keep your celery close at hand. Absolutely. absolutely. Right. Uh The Caves of Androzani was the sixth serial of the 21st season of Doctor Who. There aired in four parts twice weekly from the 8th of March, 1984, until the 16th of March, 1984. It was written by Robert Holmes, directed by Graham Harper, and produced by John Nathan-Turner. The cast included Peter Davison as the the 5th Doctor, Nicola Bryant as Perry, John Normington as Morgus, Christopher Gable as Sheraz Jack, uh, Martin Coltrane as Chelluk, David Neal as the President, Barbara Kinghorn as Timmon, and Colin Baker as the 6th Doctor. And as I said, the synopsis comes from the BBC website for Classic Doctor Who. The TARDIS arrives on Androzani Minor, a source of the life-prolonging drug refined from a substance called Spectrox. Production of the drug is controlled by Shiraz Jek, a facially deformed madman in a self-imposed exile, who blames Morgus, a powerful industrialist, on Androzani Major for all his misfortunes. Jek is fighting government troops sent to liberate the drug. His weaponry is being supplied by gunrunners secretly employed by Morgus, who receives payment from Jack in refined spectrox this gives morgus a monopoly on the drug uh, of the drug on major jack becomes infuriated with perry and saves her and the doctor from being executed on morgus's orders by government troops led by general chella the two travelers escape after learning they had contracted spectrox toxemia a fatal condition to which there is only one antidote the milk from a queen bat which the doctor must obtain from the deep caves on Minor, Morgus, seeing his power base slipping away, travels to Minor. In a climactic battle, Morgus, Jack, and all the soldiers are killed. With moments to spare, the Doctor carries Perry back to the TARDIS, where he gives her all the milk that he has managed to collect. She recovers, but the Doctor has to regenerate to save his own life. And there was kind of a... Like I said, these BBC synopses are kind of dry, but it gets the point across. Um, what do you guys have to say about this episode
2: (laughs) well Blaine why don't you go first you're new to the show
4: okay um, this is one that by the time I watched it for the first time I already heard that it's often voted as the top or one of the top two stories of classic Doctor Who Uh, there's actually 2009 poll that put it as the number one story for all of Doctor Who I think it's good. I don't th- think it's that good. I actually wouldn't even say that it's the strongest of the Peter Davison era of Doctor Who.
2: I would agree with that. Um, I, I do love the episode, but it's never been one of my favorite Davison episodes. And you're right; it was uh, it was in Doctor Who Magazine number 400. This is back during the Wilderness years, in between the old series and the new series, where he got voted the top Doctor Who series of all uh, episode story of all time. Yeah, it's a, I would rather watch Black Orchid or... I even like Revolva. I know there's a lot of people who don't like Castrovalva. Personally, I love it. Uh, I'm probably just biased because of when I saw it. But there's a lot of other days and stuff I would watch before I would watch this one again.
1: Yeah, it's surprising because they're, you know, I kind of have the same feelings. I enjoyed this episode, but I enjoyed, you know, prior to this we recorded Battlefield. And I enjoyed Battlefield as a story much more than this, while if you look at the fan rankings, Battlefield is sometimes ranked near the bottom. Um, there wasn't anything particularly wrong with this. There were some deep plot elements in it, but overall this just wasn't as engaging as other episodes. Now, um...
2: Yeah, I'll just go with that. It, it suffers from being too long. If this had been a, a tight two-parter, or maybe even a three-parter, which they didn't do at that time, but if it was been a tight two-parter or three-parter... I could see it would have been outstanding. It really would have been because most most of the time Doctor Who is about the Doctor saving that planet or that world or being the linchpin to saving the day. Essentially, at the end of the story, this one, the only thing the Doctor's doing is saving his friend. That's it. That's who he saves at the end of this. There's no in, there's no real chain. Well, I guess they take out Sheriff's Jack, but I mean, either way, it's it's really all about the Doctor saving his friend, which is very touching and very sweet and really is a powerful story
1: but it's um, I don't know and out of curiosity how do we pick this one I don't know how this one got picked (laughs) I I think primarily we picked it because and this is what I was gonna this is what I forgot about to mention in my previous statement this was one of the few Peter Davidson episodes that is readily available on Netflix I think there's (sighs) there's two episodes uh, this one or two serials this one and I think The Visitation
3: Mm-hmm. As
1: well, that are, that Netflix has chosen to put up for streaming on their classic Doctor Who. Now, I don't know if you watched this. I, I, I think, Blaine, you said you had the video of this, so you watched this on video? Uh,
4: Not quite. It's just because of the sheer cost. I went with iTunes first. Okay. So anything in the Apple store got purchased before I started buying the DVDs. So I bought this through iTunes for $5.99 tax which means they've got the same video quality as the DVD, but none of the bonus features.
1: Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Lack of a price. Uh, yeah, I'll agree with that. For yeah. 5 dollars for four cereals, that's a pretty good price.
4: Um, yeah, the bonus features on the, the classic Who DVDs are generally very good. It's just when the price differential, at least in Canadian dollars, when you're looking at paying 6 bucks versus 25 to 35 depending on the length of the cereal. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's like a buck fifty per part when you're buying it through Canadian iTunes, except for you know Web of Fear, the enemy of the world, where it's a buck fifty per part plus one dollar. I mean, it's still you can't beat that price.
1: Yeah, and yeah. Is, I will admit the the bonus the bonus content that you get on the DVD is nice, especially I like the running commentary that they'll do, the text commentary during the show that kind of gives. What they are doing with the production and any goofs that happen. thats always interesting. But yeah, the, the price differential is kind of has got to be a bit of a turnoff.
2: Well, this one, I actually went ahead and bought the DVD. I don't own very many Doctor Who DVDs, but um, our buddy Stephen Lacey—or you know, you don't have to put the word buddy in there. There's other words to describe him. But he recommended to me the Revisitations box set, which is actually a, a British, you know, uh, Region One or is it Region Two? What is it? Region Two? I
3: think
1: box
2: set. Is Region Two. Yeah.
3: The Region and, Two.
2: And it's got Caves of Andrazani, the 8th Doctor TV movie, and Towns of Wang Chiang. And each of these had been released previously, but as they came out this time with extra bonus features and stuff. And this is great. I actually had to, like, hack my DVD player so I could watch it, turn it into a Region Zero player. But I did watch all, not all, I watched quite a few of the special features for this. So I really enjoyed the heck out of that. So that was a lot of fun. And, you know, I guess I I probably sounded more negative than I should have. It's a very good story. Um, it, it is. It just wasn't all that compelling because it suffers from a lot of what classic Doctor Who does, which is a lot of going back and forth between the same sets. In this story, yeah. Perry starts off in you know whatever the military camp is. Then she goes to Shara's Jecks place. Then she goes back to the military camp. Then she goes back to Shara's you know, At some point, the Doctor and Perry are separated. It's, it, it's sort of formulaic from that point of view, and that, that's one of the things that is hard for me nowadays to watch Classic Who when they do those sort of things, because it just seems like they're trying to f- fill space. And I understand why. From a production point of view, you build the sets. You want to get as much life out of them as you can. You'd rather use the same sets for four weeks rather than two weeks and have to build another set because it's too expensive. So, I get that.
4: Yeah, and that's, there are a few other classic tropes. I mean, one of the ones... I, I used to work at a theater. I took some film studies options when I was doing my degrees. I've actually learned to analyze film. I mean, I was the seven-year-old who saw Superman the movie and was I saw it for the first time at my aunt and uncle's house and spent 45 minutes rewinding and rewatching the scene where Superman flies off the balcony after the date. Lois goes in and opens the door and Christopher Reeve is there just to try and figure out how they did that shot, because it was one <laughs> continuous shot.
3: <laughs> yeah, it wasn't until my
4: <laughs> uncle said, we need to move on now, that I actually did. <laughs> that, that's just the kind of person I am, and there's, there are a few things that will always break the illusion for me. And this opens with them. Uh, apparently there was some sort of industrialist strike. So instead of filming the scene that explains why they're coming to Androzani Minor, they end up just appearing there with ADR, or additional dialogue, recording. So Peter Davison as the Doctor and Nicola Bryant as Perry Brown come out of the TARDIS on Androzani Minor, and there's a completely different audio quality to the dialogue at the start of the scene than at the end, because it wasn't recorded in the scene, it was recorded in the studio later to explain why they're there.
3: Mm-hmm. And yeah. it
4: doesn't quite do a full job, which is why I'm sitting there thinking... The Doctor has been to this planet before. Why does it still have these problems? Why did he choose now to come back? But We can get to that later. So that threw me out. And in that same shot, they actually have a combination of film and video. Most of this is filmed on video. So they would go with film for the exteriors and recording on video for the interiors. And this, you know, on the exterior, they actually have some video for matte paintings, So when they've got swirling clouds and things like this superimposed over it and the map paintings in the background, that's recorded on video. But the Doctor and Perry, when they're actually walking through the quarry, that's on film, which has a couple of issues. One, they only do that from the long shot. So when they do a close-up of the Doctor and Perry examining glass or sand that's been fused into glass in the ground, the mountains disappear from the background. The entire mountain range is just gone the clouds are gone. Right, The whole backdrop is missing. Yeah. And there's actually one, again, I used to work in a the theater, I was actually a projectionist for two years, there's a scratch on the film in the Masters that survives, so you get this green line on the right-hand side that tells you there's a scratch in the emulsion on the film, that only goes through part of the picture that shows you the dividing line between the video and the film. Hmm. As they're <laughs> coming out of the TARDIS, and it's Film scratches of any kind drive me up the wall because I'm the guy who could sit there and go, oh, that scratch is there because a projectionist made this mistake. And that scratch is there because this guy made that mistake.
2: I wonder because there's a few versions of this floating around. Um, There was the original version that came out on like VHS, which was was as it was broadcast, I believe. Then they released another version that was touched up. And I wonder if the version you were watching... I'm not saying I i, I could have very easily missed it. It could have been in the version I watched. But I'm wondering if the version you watched was the one that wasn't touched up. Like, there's apparently... In the original, I want to say there was a spot where the color of the sky doesn't meet the the landscape properly. And there's some different things like that. I just... I wonder how many versions are out there of this of this particular episode right now.
4: I don't know. But the version I watched had problems. And not just the <laughs> normal problems with the interior sets, which has been... I mean, it's been going on with Doctor Who since the Tom from... You know, Tom Baker through Sylvester McCoy when they're inside, if you've got any bright light source blooms and leaves a trail of an after image on yeah. the video. Yeah. And that uh, is- you can
2: see a few times here. It's interesting. I don't even notice it now though because having watched Doctor Who since I was a child, that was just the way TV was done, you know, or that that show was done, I should say. And so from 1983 forward, that's how I was used to watching Doctor Who, so I never even think twice about it nowadays. But when you say it, I immediately recognize, "Oh yeah, that's right. They were switching between video and uh, and film." Yep. So it's
4: when that the flares go off, there's the the bright red afterimage for those yep. flare bombs. Um even in the part one you get people in bright white shirts that are running through the screen and they're leaving little light trails behind them. And they were just moving very fast. Yeah, and with highly <laughs>
1: reflective clothing. So it was <laughs> it produced
4: high contrast.
1: So they were basically attuned to the speed force is what you're saying.
2: Yes, that is correct. There
1: you yes. go. Now, Sean, you were, you were telling us before we
2: started recording that you you've had some experience with the jarring effect of the video to film.
1: Yeah, the, one of the one of the most noticeable ones, especially for me, was when we first the one of the first episodes that we covered, which was City of Death, uh, which I which I would consider to be probably one of the greatest uh, Doctor Who episodes of all time, the one where Tom Baker and Vala uh, Ward go mm-hmm. to go to uh, go to Paris, and they find out that this. Uh, the uh, Scarrow of Jaggeroth is trying to build this time machine to go back in time, and it's wonderful because, uh, like, like Blaine said, all the exterior shots were shot on film, and it's a nice, rich-looking uh, uh, template to it. It's, uh, the color's really good, but when they move to the interior scenes, it's shot on video, and it's very jarring to see from the Doctor and Romana running through the streets of Paris, to them coming inside a set building and it be on video and have such a different film quality so I can understand the kind of disappointment you would have seeing that kind of change of imagery during the show that's got to be like I said it's got to be very jarring
2: well Blaine, Blaine's coming at this too as someone who started watching the show later so that you, you definitely have a more modern perspective to it too and with your expertise in, in watching this sort of production so interesting observations you know what? Also about filming, it's worth noting um, the the shots of Andrazani when that first opens. It shows those you know long scale mountains in the far distance and things like that. That's Monument Valley, Utah, actually. And what, it's interesting to note that you know they actually went there years later for Matt Smith's Impossible Astronaut episodes.
1: Really, is this the first time? Or is this the first time that they actually did uh, production shots for Doctor Who in the states? Or
3: no, they...
2: it's a, just a, like it's a, it's a matte photo. Oh, okay. They just, they just probably opened their encyclopedia Britannica, I imagine, took out a picture of uh, Monument <laughs> Valley and sla- slapped it in there. It's basically what they did.
1: Yeah, so. because I know the when they did the Impossible Astronaut, there was a big thing about oh, Doctor Who's coming to America, and yes, you know something like that. So I don't know whether this was just so, since you mentioned that it was just a sort of. Mat painting type thing or effect yeah. that it really wasn't them coming there to shoot
2: no they never made it to America in the classic series they were going to at one point um, but it, it never ended up happening so
4: well they, yeah, the, they, they the made impossible it, astronaut was the first time that they actually filmed that's the first time the film crew and stars made it to America yeah.
1: they made it to Canada for the 8th uh, Doctor one that was primarily shot in Canada wasn't it that's America that's so, true it's <laughs> North America. technically America yeah. I mean yep. you know, yeah that was not, uh, largely shot in Vancouver so there you go so it was it was. they have shot in America just not in the United States yep. uh, here in the states if it's not if it's you know not the United States we don't consider it America
2: <laughs> well and and he was and what Blaine said was very specific as far as including the stars because they did film in America some shots for Daleks um, take Manhattan but the stars didn't come over just the production crew took a lot of establishing shots and stuff
4: so. <laughs> yeah sense. just
2: a second unit thing yep so
4: should we but explain anymore. second unit? Do people know what that is? I
1: think, uh, yeah, go ahead.
4: Uh, second unit in a production are people that are taking shots that do not involve the major stars, and they're usually not filmed by the main director. So this will be, you know, in your sitcom, these will be the shots of the house from the exterior, or shots of your Golden Gate Bridge, what they call establishing shots, where you get those few seconds, maybe with a voiceover to keep the story going, but just say, this is where we are. Sometimes they got some very minor characters in there if they're writing behind on production, but by and large, second unit is just doing scenery.
2: Yep. Since we're talking about the filming, a few other interesting things to note: that this story was filmed through November and December of 1983. So while they were filming Peter David's last episode, they were airing his you know, the 20th anniversary special, The Five Doctors which at the time was one of the biggest events Doctor Who had ever done. I mean, because they, they actually aired that show, you know, in the, we've talked about it before here on Who Drew mm-hmm. Freaks, I think, but they aired it here in the States at the same time and, you know, a lot of different things. So it's interesting actually, to note the, that... The States we, got it first. It's true. We did get it by two days, didn't we? It's yeah. interesting to note that uh, they were filming this while tw- the, the Five Doctors was going out. So I, I, I wonder, because you hear a lot of interviews with Peter Davison where he says that this episode was so good that had sort of made him rethink leaving the show. Because he sort of got fed up during the 20th anniversary season with all the continuity stuff. You know, oh, you got to work the Daleks in, you've got to work the Cybermen in, you've got to work, well, I guess Cybermen weren't in that season. Well, they were to some extent. Anyway, you're working the Sea Devils in, you're working in all this continuity, the Black Guardian, and he kind of got fed up with it. And so he was kind of ready to go based on that. And then towards the end of his run, they give him episodes like this that he absolutely loved. It's still one of his favorites, and he was it made him sort of wonder: you know, am I making the right decision? Should I be going? So,
4: yeah, and that's—I gotta say—he is my favorite of the classic Doctors. Yes. So If I were to rank the Doctors now, at this point, David Tennant is still my favorite, and there's a lot of Davison influence in Tennant. Yep. I would put davison second and matt smith third i'm reserving judgment on peter capaldi right now i'm loving what he's done so far but i kind of want to see the doctor's entire run before i judge it because you do get cases like you know colin baker you you see change in the way he's permitted to portray the doctor in the Mm -hmm. course of his run uh paul mcgann was doctor who the movie had some very good casting in Paul McGann, and one of the weakest scripts Doctor Who has ever seen, as far as I'm concerned. But with the Big Finish audio dramas, he has shown that no, he is a good Doctor.
1: He's
2: an exceptional
1: Doctor. Yeah. yeah I, I will have to agree with you. The, the I've listened to a limited amount of Paul McGann uh, for Big Finish, but what I have heard has been amazing, and uh, I, I think it was very disappointing that McGann was saddled with such a such a poor movie to bring him forth into Doctor Who I think he could have played a great doctor as as we and we'll reference back to that the night of the doctor little mini episode that he did was just fantastic as well setting up the mm-hmm. whole 50th anniversary thing
2: yep uh, yeah, like not... you, Peter, Peter Davidson's my favorite classic doctor uh, Paul McGann's sort of in category of his own and then David Tennant same same here another interesting prophetic 10th doctor thing. I mean, 11th doctor thing. Like I mentioned the Utah apparently during the filming of this episode, weird rumors had gotten out and BBC loved, loved trying to mislead the fans back then. So one of the working titles for this episode, um, was the doctor's wife. Mm-hmm. It had something to do with some rumor that they got out. Now it's not that it's not the working title they use most of the time. Uh, most of the time, the working title was, and I'm stalling because I can't find it, and I've forgotten what it was. Chain reaction was what it was, a good, what kind of the working title for the most part. But they did use the Doctor's wife as a working title at one point. John nathan Turner specifically did to mislead the fans, which is again sort of a prophetic thing with the Eleventh Doctor. Yeah, so kind of cool.
4: Yeah, and considering the ties to the Doctor's daughter as well.
2: Yep. Which are more off screen than on. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, also, interesting, the, the stuff where they explain the salary was added was not in the original script because Peter Davison had been promised. When, when they first gave him the, the vegetable to wear, he was not real thrilled about it. And he said, look, as long as, you know, by the end, you guys have to promise me there'll be a chance for us to explain why I'm wearing this stupid thing on screen. And they forgot to put it in. So he sort of insisted. He's like, look, you guys promised me this on my way out the door. So that whole thing was added about the salary.
4: Yeah, named after a typewriter.
2: Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, the <laughs> the gases.
4: The official explanation was that he is uh, allergic to some gases in the Praxis end of the spectrum, and Praxis was the brand of typewriter that story editor Eric Seward was using when he typed those pages to put in an explanation.
3: Hmm.
1: <laughs> I always thought it was the moon that blew up in Star Trek VI, but that just that's just me, I guess. It's that too. Okay. Yeah, it, it, about
4: it. it wouldn't surprise me if they're both named after the typewriter, because when you're sitting there stuck on trying to find out alien names, you look down at your typewriter and it says "Practice on it, and you go, hey, that, that means nothing, I'll use that.
2: That's, <laughs> that's good enough. Speaking of writer things, Robert Holmes wrote this, and he was uh, – I didn't know this until doing the research for the episode. He was the most prolific writer of the classic series, but he's also known for reoccurring themes, and several of which that got hit upon in this story. Um, he's known for disfigured foes. Which obviously shares check. Uh, if you look back, Deadly Assassin, the Master was disfigured, was one of his stories. Towns of Wang Chiang, Magnus Grill was also disfigured. And Brains of Morbius, Morbius himself was, as he'd been reincarnated, if you will, was was disfigured. Also, there's a the whole thing with valuable resources and monsters guarding it. Obviously, with this one, there was uh, you know, the Spectral. Yeah, Spectrox, the, Magma, the, yeah Mag- the Magma Beast. Yep. Uh, he also wrote Ribos Operation with the Jethric and that weird crocodile-looking thing. I can't remember what it was called off the top of my head. There's also a, a recurring theme of evil corporations. He wrote The Sunmakers and The Power of Crawl. And there was a, I, I saw something else, and I, I couldn't find the background on this, but supposedly gun running is another theme of his, but I don't remember what episode that was from. So I'll just have to leave that one out there. And it's interesting, he was influenced when he wrote it by two things – that, uh, he was in, uh, or two of the influences that are noted, at least, one was Dune, Herbert, uh, Frank Herbert's Frank Herbert, thank you, totally blanked, Frank Herbert's Dune, and Phantom of the Opera, and I, you know, I immediately, I started thinking of the, the, you know, the the Dune movie, and the Phantom of the Opera musical that was really popular in the 80s, well, it turns out this predated both of them, So he was actually being influenced by the source material, you know, the actual books, and then the original Phantom of the Opera, you know, whether it be whatever versions had been prior to to the big musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber. So kind of interesting that those influenced him and then had a huge resurgence just a couple of years afterwards.
4: Yeah, well, the Dune film would have been in production at the same time. That's probably true. Yeah, David Lynch turned down the opportunity to direct Return of the Jedi, which had a 1983 release, and chose to do Dune instead.
1: Thank goodness. (laughs)
3: <laughs> wow, yeah,
1: as 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 odd as you know, having David Lynch direct Dune was having him re- direct Return of the Jedi would have been mind-boggling. Would have been disastrous. Uh, I don't know. I think it would have been interesting, but I don't think it would have been as commercially successful as uh, you know having Richard Markman directed. I think Markman had a had a good grasp on it. Yeah,
4: yeah. I think it would have been more like. Um... Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban,
3: yeah, by probably Alfonso wouldn't...
4: Cuaron, where it was just a complete shift in tone that some audiences respond to, some don't. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, there, there 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 would have been a lot more, a lot darker feel. I think it would have made, I think it would have made the uh, conflict between Luke and Vader a bit more, well, not a bit more interesting, but a little different. So,
4: yeah, yeah, it's I think he would have gone to town with the Emperor and probably given us less Ewoks.
1: Which uh, <laughs> actually might have been better in the long run. I'm, I'm certain there are people who have have the their, their uh, likings for the Ewoks. They might not be in this call right now, but there you go. I like Ewoks. Okay. It took
2: me a while to come to terms with Return of the Jedi, but I eventually did. I think it's a great movie.
1: I miss I miss I'm you know if they if they if if the talk is true and they bring the original versions back, if Disney releases the original versions on Blu-ray, I would love to hear the Yup-Nub song put back. Well, they put them but, on DVD. Yeah, well, but they were just a really poor transfer from what I've heard.
2: It's not that poor. It's mm-hmm. it's the, They cleaned them up for the Laserdisc, and that's the version you well, get.
1: But I've got the Laserdisc versions. I just need to get well, a disc player, because mine right. crapped
3: out a while ago. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah, and exactly. a lot of that was... Uh, George Lucas was the one holding back because he wanted the definitive ones, and now that he no longer has creative control, I'm betting on Mondo Deluxe editions of you know, box sets with every version of every movie to come out in time for Christmas 2015 right along there with the release of the next film.
2: Uh, and, w- and release the Christmas special on Blu-ray.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's one I still haven't seen because I try to restrict my viewing habits to, to legal sources, but I've been warned that once seen that one can never be unseen.
2: That is beyond true, my friend. It's... 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 Uh... Never mind, I won't go there.
1: Uh, um, Okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna cut in. I'm going to defend the Christmas special, and not just because of the not just because of the Boba Fett cartoon. If you if you watch it along with the riff tracks going with it, it's fairly enjoyable. That's all I'll say on it,
2: though. Okay, I tried to show it to my wife uh, a couple weeks ago, actually, and uh, she sat down within like four minutes. She's like, "Turn this off." She, you, was so, she was visibly mad. Have, this is still during the Han Solo and Chewie scenes. <laughs>
1: uh, you have a very clever wife, Shag. Very well, clever.
2: She is brilliant.
1: So, uh, since well, we're, I don't know. She of... married him. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, good. The Canada kid comes out swinging. Now, Blaine, right. now Blaine, if you want to utter our signature phrase for Who True Freaks, you can right now. Oh, well, that's
2: fine. Oh, kid, kid gloves are off. Kid <laughs> gloves are off, boy. Okay, so since we're playing What If with David Lynch, check out some of the casting that was considered for these for this episode. Some of the various parts, people that were considered, David Bowie, Robert Daltrey, and Tim Curry. I shit you not. Wow. They seriously were considering these folks. I don't know that all of them were approached, but at least one or two of them were approached and asked to play various parts in the show. And uh, they were unavailable, so isn't that insane what this thing would have been?
4: It is, and most of those I think they were supposed to play Jack. You know, sort of the Phantom of the Opera analog.
2: Um, and that's. I think at least one of them was gonna play is um, it Mavis? What's it, whatever his name is? Yeah, the um, Morgus. 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 I think one of them was at the the for Morgus, exact. I wanna say. But yeah. really Which
4: would have been nice, because they could take stage direction and would not have misinterpreted something and ended up spending half the time monologuing to the camera. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something else that drives me out of the show is when they directly address the camera that in the fourth wall is something that is difficult to do correctly the- and when they're not trying to break the fourth wall when you have a character who's just talking to the camera rather than the person who's in the room with him at the time it just yeah those scenes I don't know why director Graham Harper chose to keep them
1: well I think it was just to accentuate the sort of smarmy evil business aspect that they were trying to get across. A lot of this a lot of this serial was essentially kind of taking down the whole manipulative, power-hungry, you know, business aspect that you would get later in the uh, decade for stuff like oh what is it, the Michael Douglas movie Um, Uh, wall street wall street exactly that kind of idea that that earning earning capital and earning money is good and the evil businessman. so that was kind of i think why they gave so many scenes to that character and tried to make him this sort of almost scenery chewing expository character
4: they did but it's honestly this is part of the issue i have with this um I and mean, like Shag said, a lot of this is like coming back to the same characters, and it's all about you know the Doctor trying to save his friend. I think one of the reasons that it's all about the Doctor trying to save his friend is because they were packing so many themes into this that there are no other redeeming characters in this story. Like, the, who who can you get behind and who can you sympathize with?
2: The one, uh, Colonel or General or whatever who he is, Shellac. Shellac, yeah, he's about the only likable character.
4: Yeah, and even then, you don't like where his orders are coming from. Right, yeah. And he says at one point, yeah, I could contest the order, but there's no point. Mm -hmm. So he's giving up when, you know, how much of the Doctor is about not giving up and doing the right thing, no matter the odds? It's just, that was part of my disconnect with it. That and the fact that my favorite classic Doctor goes down to a bad case of Poison Ivy. (laughs) <laughs> like something a little more dramatic
2: all right we got we need to say some redeeming things about this because we really are taking a big old crap on this and I have more crapping to make in a minute but um a couple different things like the set design is really interesting the caves that they filmed in um it's all most of that is set and what they did was they actually built a very clever set where all the wall various walls and pillars of rock and stuff were actually on wheels. And they would simply move them around to create a different part of the cave so they could just reuse the same set location, which I think is really clever. Um, while the characters are not redeeming, they are well-developed. You oh, they are. are. Which is really well... That doesn't always happen in classic Doctor Who.
4: Sometimes, no, this is the Doctor and Perry surrounded by a lot of very good villains. Yeah. But th- there's no one you want to say, yes, Doctor, go help Person A survive this. Help... You know, it's not like when you've got you know, Warriors of the Deep where you've got two factions and the Doctor's trying to get everyone out in one piece but there are some good guys and bad guys involved. Like, mm-hmm. they're, The Doctor and Perry are the only good guys here. And if you look at what ultimately happens had the Doctor and Perry never landed on Androzani Minor the only difference is the Doctor wouldn't have needed to regenerate. You he had think- almost no impact on the local events. He might have accelerated things, but even before the president knew about it, he said, okay, we're going to try and bring this war to an end, which Morgus could not allow because that would expose his double dealing. Right? That was in motion.
2: So you're saying Morgus still would have come down to the planet, and rather than the, the Presidium making peace with Sheraz Jack and, and Sherriss Jack remaining sort of a Spectrox warlord, you're saying, uh, I forgot his name, I just said it two seconds ago. What's his name again? Morgus. Morgus would still come to the planet, and things would still fall apart, and they still would have ended up killing Sherriss jek you think?
4: I think Morgus would not allow that communication to happen because he was ultimately the one supplying the weapons to Sherriss Jack. Mm -hmm. to to cause the conflicts, to dump the staff into his own slave camps so he could make more profit. That's what it's all about. Now, whatever the instigating incident, that's going to be an issue. And peace talks would cut down all of his profit supplies. I don't think he would have allowed that one way or the other. So I think we may have had more characters survive, but then is that really a good thing for the Doctor where, okay, not only does he regenerate and just barely get Perry out in one piece, but more people die because he was involved?
2: <laughs> well, that's, that's usually the case. Whenever the Doctor shows up, almost everyone's going to die. Uh, I think what would have happened was, I think uh, Mavis still would have been taken out, probably by Taman or whatever his assistant is, and Sheriz Jex would have made the peace treaty. I think I think it would have ended up with Sheriz Jex still controlling the Spectrox, selling it to the Presidium, and Mavis would have been taken out of the picture. I think that's so what would have happened.
4: But, yeah, so in so in other words, without the doctor's involvement, it would have been a happier ending.
2: <laughs> I suppose so. And at no point in this is the doctor trying to change the nature of the politics. Normally the doctor shows up and actively says, Take me to your leader and tries to change the politics of the situation. He didn't try that at all here. Yeah, yeah fact, we didn't even
4: get his signature his signature lines in this, not the hello, I'm the doctor, I'd like to help if I can. That was the standard Peter Davison introduction. Yeah, we fact, didn't even get that.
1: Did he even have any interaction? I'm trying to remember. Did he even have any interaction with the magus, with Magus or whatever his name is?
2: Uh, with uh, Morgus, Morgus through video. Yes, Morgus through
1: video. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah. the since since he really had obviously he didn't have any interaction with the president because Morgus killed him by pushing him down the elevator shaft. Uh, the yes, the doctor really wasn't able to to affect any change in here. So yeah, you do kind of have a point there, Blaine. That yeah, the doctor having the Doctor here actually ended up causing more chaos, or causing more deaths, which is surprisingly, which is something I never really thought about. Mm.
2: You, you, you just pulled a big bang through your Raiders of the Lost Ark, man. Jeez. <laughs> so, I, I still have to go back to say, try, try and say some positive things about this, because at the end of the day, I still really enjoy it. I would much rather watch this than, say, Frontios. Um, again, very well-developed characters who are very interesting, whether they're likable or not, they're very interesting characters to watch, very flawed and and not good people, but interesting to watch. Uh, The Doctor, again, at his core, doing something very heroic, which is save one person, which is great. Mm -hmm. Um, There's not a lot of crazy supernatural stuff going on. I mean, yes, it's in space. Yes, there's a magic drug. Yes, there's androids. But none of that's really necessary to the plot. They could have changed just tiny little elements and told the same story in the 1700s on Earth. You, you yeah. still could have had two factions, political backstabbing, something valuable that people want, you know, guards rather than androids. It's and so the story is a classic story without a lot of fantastical things that makes it a very accessible and very approachable, and and you can get on board with it even if you're not a sci-fi fan. So all of those things are all very much in the wind column. I think Peter Davison gave an outstanding performance. Um, Nicola Bryant is typically very annoying in Doctor Who. She's gorgeous to look at, but very annoying. And in this episode, not at all. She was very good. She actually, I believed she was sick. She genuinely looked sick on the set. I mean, her eyes, you know, the way they did her eyes, everything, she, she did a really good job with that.
4: She did. And one of the things with Nicola Bryant, when she was hired in the previous story, Planet of the Fire, one of the main criteria they're looking at in the new Companion is how she'd look in a bikini. Yes, that was one of the goals. In that respect, God, God bless. They him. nailed them. Like, <laughs> she looks spectacular in a bikini or anything else they wrapped her in. I mean, there, there's a story in the Colin Baker area where she's, you know, neck deep in thick, heavy Victorian garb, and her figure still shows because she's got that kind of figure. But you can, she was relatively inexperienced, and you can see her. Acting skills develop over the course of the series. Right. She wasn't a very good actress in Planet of Fire. There are moments in this, you know, one of the other reasons that they they hired her was because she could do a convincing American accent, or Sp- United States American like. accent. It, enough to convince most of the United Kingdom audience, anyway. Mm-hmm. But in part one, some of her normal British accent creeps through. And that's maybe showing my ignorance i know there's multiple accents across britain but anyway so her natural accent crept through a bit but like you're saying by the time you get to part 4 like you you believe yeah this is, she is sick she is out of it she's uncomfortable she's dealing with this and even little things like the regeneration i mean peter davison has said during that final speech where he's basically lying with his head in her lap and looking up, and there's her chest immediately in front of him, mostly unbuttoned, he admits he had a heck of a time remembering
3: his
2: lines. <laughs> They've often said that uh, Peter Davison's regeneration got upstaged by Perry's breasts. It's absolutely the truth. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't looking at him.
1: <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong
2: with that at all. And by no. the way, I met her uh, in February 2014 at a convention, got a chance to speak with her for a few minutes, she is still absolutely stunning. Mm. Beautiful woman. So,
4: Yeah, it's... I've shown... I haven't met her in person, but I've shown people pictures of her in 1984 versus 2014. And the conversation came up at work about who has been aging well. I showed them both pictures. One person said, because of the conversation, I'm going to go high and guess 20 years elapsed between them. Most people were saying it was 10 to 15 years and it was 30 years between the
2: photos. Yep. And I, I would tell you, uh, as you're listening to Big Finish, she has a particular companion chronicles um, that's takes place in two time periods. It's Perry as a young girl and Perry as an adult that is funny at parts, touching at parts, and actually put me in tears by the end of it. She has really, really come far as an actress. And, Part of it's the story that's a kicker, and part of it's her acting, and it just, it's phenomenal. I wish I could remember the name of it at this exact moment, and I can't. Perry and the, the Piscon Paradox.
4: Okay. Yeah, part of the issue with actresses like Nicola Bryant, it's, you know, the issue that we have with Halle Berry and Flintstones, the direction they get is, stand there, look pretty. And they're not really expected to show the acting talent, because that's not why they were hired. Mm-hmm deserved her Oscar for Monsters Bell as far as I'm concerned. In that film, she did a phenomenal performance because the director didn't want her in that role, and he decided to push her to her breaking point so she would quit and he could cast someone he wanted. Instead, no matter how hard he pushed her, she just kept rising to the challenge. Hmm. And we might be seeing some of that with Nicola Bryant, where I mean she's started with you know music and dancing when she was age three, so she's always been looking for some level of performance. And it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, as she gets a little bit older to the point where you can't depend on how she looks in a bikini, that she's getting pushed by the directors a little bit more. And a lot of that has got to be bringing it in herself. Because like I said, by the time she wraps up her role during the Colin Baker era, if you compare Planet of Fire to what she turns in in Trial of the Time Lord, you can see how much she's improved. Over the that span would, of, what, about a year and a half, two years?
2: That would require you to watch Trial of the Time Lord again, though. Oh, Thomas DJ is crying right now. Cry, Thomas, cry! Yeah. <laughs> you know, the um, there's a there's a bit where Peter Davidson's he has to carry her, if you recall, in the episode. And yeah. I, I watched in the interviews, P- Peter says there was a whole lot more carrying that didn't make it on screen that he had to do. And he goes, that's one of the things he remembers the most from the filming, is how much he had to carry her. And you can actually see, as he's going into the TARDIS, he totally drops her.
3: <laughs>
2: he, like, totally, boom, just drops her as he's fumbling for the key. It's, once you know it's there, it's just one of those you-can't-unsee-it things. It's hilarious.
1: Well, it's one of those yeah. things that he had to carry her across the, uh, across, like, the quarry. Yeah. You know, running across that to the TARDIS. So, yeah, that's... And, and... and Davison doesn't look like all that physically an imposing person, and I'm not (laughs) saying that, you know, Perry's you know, in any way a a large person, but still carrying even a small person for that period of time has got to be tiring so, even if you are in the best of physical conditions, so I can imagine, yes, Davison wasn't too happy with doing a lot of carrying her around.
2: Well, when you're asked to carry a gorgeous young 20-something year old, you're probably, you know Doing your best to make it work no matter what. Yeah, about, uh, she would have been
4: about have been about two months or a month or two past her 23rd birthday when this was filmed.
3: Yeah,
4: yeah. she turned 23 in October '83.
3: What up, so. stalker! <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice.
2: Well, a couple other things just to talk about the episode in general, um, a couple behind the scenes things. Uh, this uh, this series this serial as, as they say in England. The first episode had 6.9 million viewers. And by the end, the final episode Peter Davison's regeneration had 7.8 million viewers, which is a little less than Doctor Who gets nowadays, but it's still pretty high. But then again, they only had like three stations over there at the time. But here's the interesting thing that I did the research on. I compared it to Legopolis, the final episode of Legopolis with Tom Baker, you know, Tom Baker, icon of the show. I'm I'm go I went into this to to look at the number to be able to go look how much the audience had dropped. Oddly enough, the opposite. Legop the final episode of Legoples with Tom Baker's regeneration only had 6.1 million viewers. Hmm. So, I don't necessarily understand why the 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 variance of, you know, 1.7 million viewers, why there were 1.7 million more for Davison's era when it wasn't as popular as Tom Baker's. I can't even begin to fathom how that happened. But
4: uh, part of it that. could be the, the, the change in the times. Could right? be. because uh, Baker's era, it was still running on Saturdays. And Peter Davison's era, because he was coming in with All Creatures Great and Small and a bunch of hits, he was the first established star to play the Doctor, as far as television audiences were concerned. I mean, Hartnell did a lot of movies, including one where he co-starred with John Pertwee. But when Davison took over, that's when they shifted to twice a week on the weeknights. So it actually ran Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and one of those nights, it was going head-to-head with Coronation Street, Mm -hmm. which, in the UK, is something of a juggernaut. Right. And it actually beat it in Davison's first season, Hmm. which says a lot about the pull of Davison and that. So it's it could be that weeknights had greater viewers than Saturdays for the difference between that. It could also be that, I mean, quite frankly... Tom Baker's final season—it was time to be Tom Baker's final season. Whereas Peter Davison, I was watching at home. I'm not tired of him yet. I, I would have been quite happy to see him go through. So, he may have had more fan base. And, you know, as much as we have pointed out the flaws in case of I still think it's a tighter script than Logopolis.
2: Careful, careful. I'm not saying you're necessarily wrong, but Legopolis is my favorite Doctor Who episode of all time. Simply, it's my own fault for when I was born and when I started watching the show,
1: but it is my favorite. Well, there you go. Oh, so, well, and another interesting fact is, bringing it back to New Who, and specifically the, uh, the most recent episode, The Last Christmas, that uh, aired just uh, as of recording just uh, less than a week ago, that that episode only pulled in i think like 6.8 million viewers in the uk Whoa, it really it, it was surprisingly yeah. it they they said that it it had a high appreciation index its appreciation index was about 82 percent, but it pulled in very few viewers and this might not be including people who watched it on uh, the, the bbc player which is like their on-demand service or whatever but it was the it was the lowest viewed Christmas episode since they started doing Christmas episodes. So mm. the final, you know, even the first part of this uh, this serial got higher ratings than the last episode of the Capaldi season. So quite surprising. So that says something about this.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it, interesting. Another thing too. That the one thing that was very unique about this one. Well, I shouldn't say because I think the first Doctor did the same. I take that back. Either way, doesn't matter. After Caves of Andrazani was done, usually when the doctor would regenerate, you would have to wait to the next season to see the next doctor in the role. They decided for this, for Colin Baker to go ahead and give him an opportunity to be the doctor as the last episode of the season. So you got Caves of Andrasani, The next story was The Twin Dilemma, and that was the season finale a four-particle Twin Dilemma. Well, let me tell you, that thing stinks on ice. It is god awful. In fact, that same poll I mentioned earlier, Doctor Who number four, Doctor Who magazine number 400, where Caves of Andrazani got voted the number one story, Twin Dilemma got voted the absolute last. Really? Okay. So, um, it's, it's really bad. And you may have some defense of it, Blaine, and I've heard some people defend it before, but it's almost unwatchable. It's that bad, in my opinion.
3: Yeah. So,
4: I, I don't know if I'd put it dead last, but bottom five,
1: yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can remember, if I make it in, I can remember watching this air on uh, PBS uh, at the time that they were airing it and finishing up uh, Cave Zandersani and seeing the regeneration and seeing the new Doctor and I'm like, oh, wow, this looks interesting. And then watching the next episode the next weekend and going, ooh, this isn't good at all. So yeah. even, even at like age 14 or 15 when I was watching this, I was like, ah. Uh, this isn't for me. So unfortunately, yeah, Colin Baker was pretty much where Doctor Who finished off for me as a kid.
2: I stepped away from the show for a little while during the ba- Colin Baker era.
1: I think it was um, also our PBS station, I think stopped airing it and started airing either Blake 7 or Red Dwarf, so.
2: Hmm. <laughs> Mention PBS. You know, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the show. My my watching on PBS was a little scattershot cuz like I watched, you know, uh, I, once I finally really started watching it, it was Tom Baker, so I watched all of Tom Baker, and then here comes Peter Davison, and I see the regenerational of and then all of a sudden the next episode I'm episode I'm watching is Robot. They they immediately recycle Tom Baker. They, they didn't show back. any. They didn't show any Peter Davison at first. It was very confusing for me. That's, and at first I didn't like Peter Davison at first, because um, I I was I was young. I was probably uh, what eleven when when I became aware of the change. And I started watching in 83, so right as Davison's actually almost ready to go. But I uh, I started watching, and I fell in love with the Tom Baker Doctor. Didn't want to accept, just like everyone, I didn't want to accept the change. You know, the, old, the whole you never forget your first Doctor bit you hear? So yeah. when, when Peter Davidson came on, I was angry as hell. I don't want to like this guy. I'm not going to like him. Blah, blah, blah. I hate this. I hate that. Blah, blah, blah. Well, by the time Ford of Doomsday had rolled around and then I finally saw it, I was absolutely head over heels thinking, this is the best guy ever. I love this. And I have a thing where I typically become a fan of the current Doctor. Whoever's the current Doctor, I, I get excited about. Like when, when it was t- Chris Eccleston, even though he's not my favorite Doctor, I was excited at the time. David Tennant, I was thrilled when he was the doctor. I was thrilled when Matt Smith was the doctor. A little bit of an exception going on right now. Maybe we'll figure maybe I'll find my happy place eventually. But for me, Peter Davison, when I became a fan and started watching the show in '83, Peter Davison was the current doctor. So he became my doctor. And that carried through for years. And that that's I think that's why he's still my favorite doctor, was because he was the current doctor when I started watching the show, even though he wasn't my first. He was the guy that had the new episodes. He was the guy I was reading my Doctor Who Fan Club of America magazine, called Whovian Times, about. So, I will always love Peter Davison as the Doctor, and um, I don't really know why I started on this tangent, but there you have it.
1: Well, I think it's a great way to kind of wrap up the episode. Do you have anything uh, you want to say about uh, now, you specifically asked Blaine to be on you know, an episode where we covered uh, Peter Davison. Was there anything okay. that uh, kind of uh, drew you to his character?
4: Yeah, a lot of it, like I said, was the attitude. I like his standard greeting of, you know, hello, I'm the doctor, I'd like to help if I can. To me, that just sums up the entire series right there, and he's laying it out when, when he introduces himself to everyone in almost all of his stories, but not this one. You know, I, th- there's a lot I do enjoy about Peter Davidson's run in general. Uh, some of it as it went back to a a fuller TARDIS. I know a lot of people didn't like having three companions in the TARDIS. To me, I, I like that amount of complexity, right? We've got, we had that right from day one. At the end of the first episode, the population of the TARDIS has doubled. It's gone from two to four back in 1963, right? That was the standard. And we saw some of that back in the Peter Davison era. You know, We saw some of the hearkening back to the the Pertwee era where we see the Warriors of the Deep and the Silurians return. You know, as Shag said, season 20 was pretty continuity heavy. He was the Doctor during the Five Doctors 20th anniversary special. I mean, he was the Doctor when Nicola Bryant came in as Perry, and I think... I know she was introduced with Colin Baker's Doctor in mind, and that's what they were planning to do, but I actually think she had a better dynamic with Peter Davison's doctor than Colin Baker's, because Perry, her motivation for a lot of it was to have an awesome vacation. You know, she's up there <laughs> looking for a nice, calm beach to, to lay down on, while Colin Baker's doctor is talking about, you know, going into exile and meditating for a thousand years. So for those first few stories, I'm like, how are they going to run into adventures? How kludgy is this going to get again and again and again? Whereas, you know, if Peter Davison had she stuck around with him until he sparked that sense of adventure with her, just like Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright did in the first incarnation of the doctor. Right. Cause you go back to those very early days, the doctor's not interested in helping or doing anything other than his science experiments. It was Ian Chesterton for the most part. who would say, no, we're not leaving until we fix this society and Barbara Wright backing him up.
2: Yep. Aztecs. Perfect example. Yep.
4: Yep. And I believe it was even, uh, Story seven, the writes, when the doctor first comments, you know, this is turning into something of an adventure, isn't it?
3: <laughs> right, doc- that's cool.
4: Right. The doctor learned to how to be an adventurer. I know Peter Capaldi said in Into the Dalek that the turning point was when he met the Daleks, but watching it, that's not what I got. I got the turning point was meeting Ian Chesterton. And I think that's why when he, we see the the Rings of Akatan in season seven I think that's why Matt Smith was so mad. He mentioned he'd been there with his granddaughter, but just his granddaughter. And the way that first, you know, his first ten stories played out, there's no room for a story for him to leave with his granddaughter without Ian and Barbara. So his first visit to this planet was before this series started, before he was an adventurer. And I think when he's returned, it's after the fact and he realizes the problem for this girl that he left behind. You know, that's the episode where he turns to Clara and said, there's one thing you need to know about me. Well, one thing aside from the two hearts in the big blue box, you know, we don't walk away. Whereas his first incarnation clearly walked away when he was there before. And Davison doesn't do that. Davison doesn't run because he's being chased. There's a number of episodes where Davison runs just because he's got places to be, and he's excited to be in this world. He's just excited to be a part of the universe. So even before the story started, in a lot of these cases, he's already jogging around just to check out what he's got here, because this here's a planet he's never been to before. Here's a society he's never interacted with before,
2: right? And he's, first doctor, first doctor to wear tennis shoes. Yep.
4: Yeah, which I mean,
2: David Tennant. A lot
4: of that time crash special with David Tennant and Peter Davison interacting directly. I swear that was you know at the end when he calls him back and said, "I love being you," and you're and all that. I I could swear Stephen Moffat said okay, just tell him how you feel. We've got him here.
2: Yeah, it, it's a question of whether that was Stephen Moffat talking or – it definitely wasn't the doctor talking. Was that Stephen Moffat talking or was that David Tennant? Because David Tennant's our age, or at least my age, I should say. And so he came up the same time I did with, with uh, Peter Davison as the active doctor on the screen. So,
4: Yeah, and if you uh, read the bonus, the little booklets that come with the DVDs, there is a moment where he's you know, talking about having a conversation with his younger self, if he can go back, and how his young self was attached to Tom Baker, so he'd already been watching before The Regeneration. Mm, okay. But and he's saying, well, yeah, Tom, and the, you know, his younger self is going, Tom Baker leaves? Well, yeah, but it's going to be okay, don't worry about that. Like, the way it's phrased, he's not trying to, to put it out, but you can tell he's a fan of Davison, and you could say that in his portrayal. Like, that's I may prefer, it may be that the only reason I prefer Tenant to Davison is just because of the order I was exposed to them. Because if you go through the new series, Tenant draws a fair amount of inspiration for the way he portrays it from Peter Davison's Doctor. Just as Smith draws from Troughton, and I see combinations of Hardnell and Pertwee coming out in Capaldi. Hmm. Whereas Eccleston yeah. was very much doing his own thing because we didn't really have the Haunted Doctor prior to that.
3: Yeah.
2: You know, uh, I'm going to tangent from you there, if that's okay, for a second. You, you mentioned Time Crash. Any idea what the uh, connection between Time Crash and Caves of Andrasagna is, besides Peter Davison?
0: Uh, let me just
4: run through what happens there. Um, we forgot to put the shields up.
2: Now, n- nothing in the story yeah. whatsoever. It's okay. Believe it or not, it's the
4: director. That's
2: right. Graham, Graham Harper.
4: Harper directed that, too.
2: Yeah, Graham Harper... Not, is, is really amazing because not only did he direct Classic Era Who, he has directed New Series Who, which is astonishing. I didn't realize that until I was watching the special features last night. I, I, I knew he had done both, but I hadn't put together it was the same guy. So he, um, he had directed Warrior's Gate, Caves of Andrazani, and Revelation of the Daleks. Now with the new series, he's directed 13 episodes, including Time Crash, and he did the season 2, 3, and 4 finales. So he's done some really important stuff with New Who. And he's a great director. Um, There's a whole special feature about him talking about how he was very hands-on as a director, which was extremely unusual back then. Normally the director sat in a booth way up and passed notes to the production guy on the floor. And uh, it was unusual for the director to be actually there on the floor. And you can see the video of him running around. He's very frenetic, full of a lot of energy, very active. And apparently that helped get the actress very enthused for the episode. And I think that shows in their performances. That may be why we were, I was so complimentary of their performances. Is, is he had a big part of that? So I think that's really cool that he was involved in all that.
4: He was. He's essentially an American director working in the u in the UK system. Uh, in in the US, so the American Film Institute. If we see something that's, you know, by David Lynch, that means David Lynch directed it. But if you see by Robert Holmes, in a UK things, that means Robert Holmes wrote it. So the the writer has the most influence and where the director is overseeing everything in most north american productions in most british productions the director is just working with the actors and the cinematographer or director of photography is the one setting up the camera shots and the director has little or no input in that right and you've got other like prop directors and everything and other people production designers actually putting the sets together so the roles are a lot more compartmentalized whereas graham harper he he can't seem to let go of those aspects that most UK production teams leave to other people. And, and he's I, in there.
2: And I think it's better for
4: involved him. Involved in all of them. Yeah.
2: I, uh, I don't know. I wonder if he's the only uh, director who's ever got to direct two different regeneration scenes. Because he got to direct this one, and then he got direct to direct uh, what? The uh, Tenet David, one? The tenant's fake one. Oh, okay. <laughs> Where he regenerates and then pushes all the energy into the hand. Uh Oh, yeah. When he
4: when he regenerates into himself, because he was having was it ego problems? I think is the way Matt Smith talked. Yeah, Matt
2: Smith described it that way. That was just for convenience on the thirteen, but yeah. So very fun, interesting stuff. Now we should talk. We should spend a few moments and before we wrap up here, talking about the regeneration itself. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple different things with it. The and this is the stuff I learned from the special features last night. But like when the end of episode one, where the Doctor was getting executed, you know, with the red hood and all that. Apparently, part of that was intentional to tease the audience because the audience knew Davidson was going to regenerate in this story. But they don't know when, you know, you never know the details going in. So, part of that was to tease the audience to make them wonder if the execution was going to be what triggered the regeneration. So, that was a bit of a red herring. Um, I don't think the red cloak was a joke for red herring, but it works for me. Then, this is the most interesting thing I found. In Episode 3, I don't know if you guys noticed this or not, after the Doctor has changed the course of the Rebel ship, and he's flying it, and he's all disoriented, and he's not feeling well, the Spectrox Toxemia is really taking place, he looks up at the stars of the space field, and there's a weird sort of warbly effect. You guys remember seeing that at all? Yep, vaguely. It is the same effect used when the Doctor regenerates in Episode 4. And this is not in the script. This was, would have been a Graham Harper director thing or maybe a post production guy thing. But either way, apparently it's supposed to represent that the doctor is starting to regenerate right then and there on the ship and he, he shakes it off. Which is yeah. so cool. Which is sort of ironic because the doctor does do that again. Um, you know, in, uh, in whatever it is, uh, in, in the other one Graham Harper directed, you know, he shakes off the regeneration. So. Interesting.
4: Yeah, there were a lot of nice touches. I mean, the regeneration itself, Baker, it was the first time that we actually heard the new Doctor speak in the same episode. And Mm, that's that's one of the things that that kind of irked me a little bit. As I said, Peter Davison was my favorite Doctor of the classic Doctors. So watching this for the first time, not really being familiar with Colin Baker, having heard the reputation of how the Baker era was not a strong era for Doctor Who. And hearing fans debate about whether or not Colin Baker was a significant part of that weakness, when the first thing he does after regenerating is, you know, and Nicola Bryant, or Perry Brown, who's now on the other side of the room, so you can tell this regeneration has taken some time because he no longer has his head in her lap. Mm -hmm. You know, she's kind of mourning and freaking out because, you know, what's she going to do now? She's stuck in the spaceship she can't control, which, I don't know, I would like to see a little more time with her dealing with that before Baker stands up and says, yeah. well, change my dear and it seems not a moment too soon. Which he, also called, seemed...
2: he also calls her egotistical.
4: Yeah, that's three eyes in the first minute sounding rather egotistical. Like To me, he just starts, you know, taking digs at Perry and at the previous incarnation, which is one of my favorites. It got Colin Baker off on the wrong foot to me. Now, when you follow that up with the twin dilemma, I get <laughs> why... People would have a hard time getting emotionally invested in his doctor.
2: A lot of his episodes, though, just don't even make sense as you watch them. Things happen on screen because the script dictates that they do, but they don't even necessarily make sense. And some of those early Sylvester McCoy are the same way, too. Dragonfire is a mess. You know, it wasn't yeah. until McCoy's second and third season where things really shaped back up, but it, that. I'm pretty convinced it was the Baker era and the first season of McCoy is what killed the original series. And, you know, in hindsight, maybe it's for the best, so that we got such an amazing relaunch in 2005. I don't know. Yeah,
4: Yeah, Jonathan Nathan-Turner has admitted he should have left with Tom Baker, because he was, you know, kind of running on fumes by the time he got to Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy. He was running out of ideas, and the show would have been better with fresh blood in that producer seat
2: one time he tried to leave and they basically said if you leave we're not going to renew the show and so he felt trapped he he didn't want the show to end he didn't want his friends to all lose their jobs because he wanted out so that's, you know
4: yeah it's not the first or last time that's happened look at the last two seasons of the X-Files <laughs> same thing Chris Carter went to Fox saying season 7 is the last year here's how we're wrapping it up and Fox said no 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 we own the show we're going to continue whether you guys are involved or not
2: it's funny. I came to X Files in the last two seasons, so I kind of like those. But
4: um, yeah, I found I thought season eight was a very strong season, but nine was not. Uh, we'll leave that for X Files podcasts.
2: There we go. But so uh, one of the other last things on the regeneration scene. I never really, I guess I noticed it sub subconsciously, but I didn't notice it you know consciously until I was reading the, the these this information along with the DVD is during the regeneration, the music playing and everything there is a bell tolling during the regeneration. Okay. And I didn't even think about the significance of that. And it works really well. It's like, wow, that's really, really clever. So, I dig it.
4: Yeah. Yeah, That's they did a nice job on the regeneration itself, like I said, apart from... Okay, we knew we were going to have... You know, the new Doctor is going to be a bit of a jerk. Can they establish that very quickly? Whether or not that was the right direction when Peter Davison is probably the nicest of the Doctors to this point. Yes. Right. Go well, from one extreme to the other. You can debate the quality of that decision. But, I mean, there are things to appreciate about this. I mean, Jack's mask looks great. The costumes are very clear. It's not... One of the issues with Doctor Who is a lot of times the costumes look like costumes. You do not believe these are characters. You believe these are actors with a very limited wardrobe budget. Hmm. Here, I think, for the most part, it actually works. Like, you know, the the costumes are... They're done well enough to believe these for everything but the Magma Beast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the Magma Beast was a very poor, almost paper-mache dragon-looking thing. Speaking of the costuming, I really enjoyed the fact that the military costuming had some sort of elements of uh, the original series Star Trek with the Different color, uh, sort of shoulder pads uh, of the yellow, blue, and red. I guess denoting different types of military personnel or whatever. I thought that was an interesting sort of stylistic design. I agree, I agree with that. Yeah, I don't, I, was,
2: think,
1: yeah. Ahead, so, I, I don't know
4: if it was. Go ahead, Blaine. I don't know if that was branches or rank indicators, but yeah, there's there's a, a definite mentality where there are unique unique elements to the uniforms for people in different roles. And yet, you believe this, these are all variations on a theme.
3: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Now, i got to come to the defense of the Magma Beast to some extent.
1: Okay. Uh,
2: sort of. <laughs> it, it, it does not look paper mache to me. It looks very well crafted. Like, it was probably put together very well. It doesn't look cheap. It doesn't look like it's going to fall apart. It unfortunately looks very cartoony, though. It looks like it belongs in a Power Rangers episode, you know, very gregarious, cartoony sort of thing, rather than a vicious, ferocious beast in Doctor Who. It looks ridiculous.
1: Okay, I'll give
2: you that.
4: Yeah, at at the very least, it would have been nice if the jaw could move.
2: Yeah. It it reminds me a little bit of the, the Ergon, I think it was, from Ark of Infinity, except this one actually looks like it was sculpted better. But is just as uselessly walking around unable to move and things like that. So, yeah.
4: Yeah, it's not quite Worries the Deep, which is apparently that was the tipping point for Peter Davison. The When he, Yeah, when he decided to leave is when he was told, okay, with the production schedules, we don't have time for the paint to dry on this monster, so here's the new script where you don't touch it, because your hand will leave it <laughs> That's when he said, <laughs> if, you, if you don't have the time and money to do it right, I don't want to be involved.
2: How funny! Well, apparently the uh, speaking of time and money, the regeneration scene was sort of similar. Very frenetic. Very like they were they were up against the clock. They were going to turn the lights off in the studio if they didn't finish it. So where they wanted to do, let's say five or seven shots, they could only do two. So it was uh if they on the DVD there's the behind the scenes you can actually see someone's got like a handheld camera filming the in between take stuff and they're running and they are moving so fast and they clearly are up against the clock. So, it's
1: interesting to see that. Oh, it's it's always interesting to know the sort of limited budget and limited time that they got to do these episodes and how that, you know, from the writing stage to the actual production was sometimes so quick that any changes, you know, were made on the fly and you know, I I remember talking about this during the Battlefield episode that there were scenes where they were getting ready especially the scene where Ace was in the water tank that was done at like (sighs) the last minute and you know had that incredible accident with the glass breaking and everything so yeah Yeah. it's the the limited budget of it was a factor but I think they worked around it in some sometimes in some very spectacular ways
4: Doctor Who and Filmation have one thing in common I find I don't know if you guys know Filmation. It's that Canadian animation studio. Oh yes.
1: Oh, dude, Filmation's what we all yeah. grew up on. Star here. Star Trek, the yeah. animated series, yeah. Tarzan,
2: Zorro, mm-hmm. Batman: The New Adventures. Oh hell yeah, we know Filmation. Right? Yeah. Yep.
4: Yeah, so that's one thing that I find Classic Who and Filmation have in common. The budgets are pretty damn low, but if you actually find out what the budgets are, you realize they are way lower than you would have guessed by watching what's on screen. Exactly. Yeah. They didn't have a lot of money. But these guys knew how to stretch every penny or shilling, whatever they were using at the time, that they had.
2: Yep. Oh, yes. And that, that's part of the reason JNT was kept around so long, because he could pinch a penny like nobody's business. And they knew other people wouldn't be able to do that. And that was the producer's job, was to save every penny. So, Speaking of money, things you could spend money on uh, related to this. You like that segue there? Nice. Uh, merchandise. Not not a lot of merchandise came out of this, but you, you you had your VHS releases, you had your numerous DVD releases of the show. You there was actually a soundtrack released, which is interesting. I wasn't aware of that going into this. Hmm. Of course, you've got a novelization written by. Take a guess, Sean.
1: Um, was it Terrence Dix? Bang! You there win.
2: Go. And then more recently, there actually have been an action figure set, a two figure action figure set of Perry and Sharers Jack. So kind of surprised they didn't release one of Peter Davison with like a muddy coat. Figured that would be an easy repaint for them to sell, but they didn't do <laughs> it. So, but yes, you can, you can get it very reasonably priced, uh, a five inch, uh, figures of Jack and Perry together, which is sort of nice. Cause they don't really make the five inch figures anymore, which is very sad to me. They make the crappy little three and a three quarters figures that look terrible. So,
4: yeah. So um, did, did, they sell the, uh, the bottles of 10 centiliters of this, of, of the, this the fluid that's actually. Spectrox? Yeah, but, you know, the, the bottle itself looks like it might hold about, you know, two and a half centiliters <laughs> as opposed to 10.
2: Not to my knowledge. They have not sold little vials of, of Spectrox, but that would be great. I, I would definitely be, especially if it touched uh, Nicole O'Brien's lips, I'd buy one of those. So. Mm. Um, yeah. So
4: that's one of the other things that drove me out in the prop department was when he said, well, I'll give the president 10 centiliters. 10 centiliters is 100 milliliters, which is 100 square centimeters of fluid, uh, which is, uh, how do I put it in? It's about a, a tenth of a quart. And that flask that he passes over is not a tenth of a quart.
3: Yeah.
2: Maybe their measurement system is different in space.
4: Well, then it, w- if it wouldn't be called Centiliter, because that's very much based on the metric system.
2: Look the UK was,
4: audiences would be familiar with.
2: Maybe Stop. it was the TARDIS translation circuits translating it so we could
1: understand it. Stop trying to argue with the scientist, Jack. He's going to <laughs> He's going to school you, okay? I'm,
2: I'm wearing my interact. Leave me alone. Okay, there you so. go. Other things, uh, believe it or not, there have been a couple of new series references to this episode, which I didn't even realize uh, until I was doing research for this. One was in a previous Christmas episode, which apparently got higher ratings than the one this year, was The Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe. Remember that one with the the forest and the, the living trees and all that? Yep. Yep. Turns out the trees and the Harvest Rangers are all from Androzani Major. Hmm. Yep. Did not realize that. Yeah, I picked
4: up on that rewatching it last year with a friend of mine who hadn't seen most of the Christmas episodes.
2: Oh, okay. There you go. I, I watched it last year too, and I just maybe I did hear it last year, and it just know, one year out the other. I don't know, but it just definitely didn't stick with me. And then, and this one's not really terribly surprising. But remember when um, in the name of the Doctor, when Clara has to go into all the various timelines and and. Uh, What's his name? Stephen Grant goes into the timelines and kills the Doctor and every point in his life and all that business. Yeah,
4: Richard E. Grant. Uh, yep. as,
2: yes. Yes, thank the you. Very intelligent. The Ninth Doctor, uh, as I like to uh, call. Cool.
4: Yeah, from the scream of the shellka.
2: Hell to the yeah. <laughs> so Vastra actually mentions that the Doctor dies in the Dalek Asylum on Androzani and in Victorian London. So she actually references caves of Androzani and how the Doctor died there rather than regenerated. So yeah, not a lot. Um, and then Expanded Universe, there's not a lot of Expanded Universe stuff either. I totally expected that by now, uh, Big Finish would have done like a Shara's Jack, you know, episode or something like that. Because that he, he'd be an ideal sort of character to bring back, you know, learn his backstory or whatever. And they haven't done anything yet. The only things they've really done was in 2007, there was a really nice short story called Winter. Uh, it's, I really, I, I really love it. It's, it, it's sort of a weird one. It's a Fifth Doctor and Nyssa story, but it all takes place within the last few moments of the Fifth Doctor's life as he's sort of battling with the Master for control of the regeneration. Like, there's more going on there than we think. It's not just the Master actually, like, saying hi, you know, laughing at him and the Doctor imagining that. Apparently the Master is sort of trying to influence the regeneration. Um, So, but anyway, in the narrative here, the Doctor, during that moment, Mentally communicates across the stars to Nissa, and they actually have a short little sweet story together during the regeneration, and it's really well done. And so that's it's called Winter. It's part of a, a short story anthology they did on one of the discs. I wish I could remember which one it is. I think it's called the something to do with seasons, but it's a great Peter Davison one. Um, I'll it, it, send me a message if you want to know what the hell it is, folks. I'll look it up. Anyway, then apparently there was in a book called Burning Heart which touched on the fact that after this story, the Sixth Doctor sort of blamed Perry for his previous incarnation's death. So he tries to sort of distance himself from her, telling that he's working towards the greater good. But anyway, he, he kind of sort of goes in seclusion, and it's all because he's trying to cope with the fact that he feels like it's her fault that he died. So... Hmm. But again, beyond that, not a lot of Expanded Universe stuff. I kind of expected more, being how how big the episode is. Like Talons of Wang Chiang... There was so much expanded universe stuff. It was crazy. You know, this one,
1: not as much. Well, I think this could also be something, you know, that they could mine for easy ideas because, you know, the whole idea of the sort of corporate uh, conglomeration thing going on on Androsani Major, you know, the oppression of the people and the mining companies down there and all that, the idea of this... Uh, illicit drug use. These are things that, you know, they could take and work into different storylines, I think, that they could possibly use and tackle in a Doctor Who story. So that is surprising that they haven't like come out and done some stuff about this.
4: Yep. Yeah, there's there's a lot of very well created villains in here. I mean, we have said that before. You you could tell a story about how Margus got to the role he's in, or Morgus mm-hmm. came to the role he's in. You could look at Chellac and see you know, this military man is probably devoted. See the military get twisted because of Morgus' influence. You could do the the Jack story that Shag mentioned. Like, there's a lot of potential in the backstory for this. I am also surprised that it hasn't been followed up on.
3: Yeah,
2: because I mean, again, using Towns Wang Chang as, as a comparison, just because they're written by the same people. Um, by Robert Holmes, and they both are voted consistently favorite past Doctor episodes. I mean, they've done, you know, there's a whole audio called The Brisbane," of, uh, the Butcher of Brisbane, which is about Magnus Magnus Grill's rise to power. And it's excellent. And it just seems like something with Shara's jet would have made sense to do as well. By the way, uh, our good friend Blaine here just did a little uh, interweb magic and pulled up the name of that short story, or audio short story for me. Yes, the one where I mentioned the Doctor has the conversation with Nyssa while he regenerates. It is a short story on the disc, Circular Time by Big Finish. Definitely pick that up. Again, it's like four short stories and it's it's excellent. Love it. Absolutely love it.
1: Cool. Well, are we, do we have anything else we really want to get out about this? Or are we about ready to wrap up? Or are we good? I'm tapped out. Okay.
4: Um, yeah, the only other comment I'd like to make is, I mean, Shag said it, it would have been a tight two-parter. I think it, at the very least, even if they were married to that four-part format, I think it would have worked better had we found out that the plants, I think it would have worked better had we found out that the plants that they were exposed to in part one were toxic before part two. Cause if you weren't watching it in a marathon, as I assume most of us were for doing this, they're actually in separate parts. So they'd
2: be on different nights. Mm. So mm. that first
4: episode, there's no indication that there's going to be any long-term problems because of that.
2: So they don't seeing? mention this. They don't mention the scratching and the burning till the second one, huh?
4: Yeah, not till early in the second episode. And it's late in the second episode when they're, when they, uh, Salatine says, well, oh, that's Spectrax Toxemia. You're going to die. Right? That comes out in part two. So I think if you're watching this each night, it would have seemed like a fairly pointless scene. Right? And Perry somersaults forward. And if you watch closely, you could see her bounce off the mattress and come back into frame.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can.
4: Yeah, she lands in this, you know, like I said, apparent Spectrox or, you know, super deluxe alien Poison Ivy, which, I don't know, like I said, I would have preferred it if a different Doctor had gone down to this alien Poison Ivy, but I do like the fact that this highlights the dangers are not just the individuals that the Doctor and his team encounter. They are going to alien worlds. These alien worlds all have... Right. They've got their own vegetation, their own flora and fauna, where everything about them really is alien and you don't know what you're dealing with. And there are risks everywhere. And that's what this came out with. Right. She slipped. Even the doctor just wiped it off with her hands, said, Oh, it's probably harmless and just dusted his hands off. Had he, you know, just taken the precaution of wiping the stuff off her legs with his coattail instead of his hands, he'd been fine.
2: It, 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 I can't help but remember the echoes with, with David Tennant. Same sort of thing. you know. It's not that he died well, he died of an accidental exposure to something in, in the world he was on and he did it and he purposely chose to die to save the other person. Again, the parallels between Tennant and, and Davidson are strong.
4: Yeah. On screen and off. If, In the off chance that there are listeners who aren't already aware of this, uh, David Tennant married Georgia Moffat who played the Doctor's daughter whose father's birth name is Peter Moffat and whose stage name is Peter Davison. Yep. So Doctor Number 10 is the son-in-law of Doctor No. 5. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping Capaldi and his subsequent actors last long enough uh, that David Tennant and Georgia Moffat's son can play Doctor 15 and just keep the cycle going.
3: Well,
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd it would, it be would perfect. Be, it is a bit odd. I mean, if I was Peter Davison, I'd be like, well, wait a minute. First, you took my job. Now you're taking my daughter. What the hell's going on here, man? <laughs> I'd be a little freaked out. But anyway,
4: yeah, so and it's there are some be- great home video memes that uh, Georgia Moffat put together, talking to her son. It's who's your favorite doctor? Well, he likes to have a tenant because he runs a lot. Who's your next favorite doctor? Tom Baker. Who's your third <laughs> favorite doctor?
1: I don't have one. I'll <laughs> be thrilled to hear that. Wasn't there? Wasn't there some sort of dig at that during the? Uh- Five-ish doctors. Uh, the one that they, the the one that they did with uh, Sylvester McCoy, Colin Baker, and Peter yeah. Davison for the 50th anniversary, where they were trying to get on set yeah, to the, uh, they, name they, of the they, yeah. Davison kept referring to his inside source, and and, and it like, was it was tenant.
2: Well, and everyone's like, we know it's your son-in-law. Can't you
4: just say that? <laughs> yeah, I think it was Colin Baker who said. Well, well, this inside source happened to have a Scottish accent and be married to your daughter. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think I'm going to
1: have to watch that again tonight. That is so oh, funny. Oh, yeah, those those were all fun. Well, guys, it, it was great talking to you about this episode. You know, like I said, uh, I'm surprised that this is one of the highest-ranking episodes. It does have some flaws, but it was it was enjoyable nonetheless. Yeah, I would
4: put it in the top quarter of the series. I wouldn't put it necessarily in the top five. Mm, there you go.
2: Yeah, and, and folks... Go watch it for you. If you if you haven't watched it for yourself and you're listening, which I have no idea why you would do that, but anyway, go watch it because it, there is a lot of redeeming qualities. I kind of went through them earlier. It's worth watching. It absolutely is. And you know what? It's it's the ending of a, a great era.
3: So. Mm-hmm.
1: And like I said, if you do have uh, Netflix in the United States, it is available by going to Netflix and searching for Classic Doctor Who. I think it's like season 16 or something you'll have to scroll through some of them the only uh surprisingly enough the only uh, doctor who does not have any uh, episodes on the netflix classic doctor who is colin baker shocker yeah i know well and they don't have the uh they don't have the paul mcgann movie i think they had that for a while but the, unfortunately i guess licensing rights or whatever went away from that so But, guys, thanks for coming on. Uh, While we're at it, do we want to go ahead and uh, promote ourselves, what else we're doing on the Internet? Blaine, would you like to go ahead and do that?
4: Uh, Sure. As Sean already mentioned, I've got a number of shows running through Bureau 42. Um, I did Doctor Who 50 and 50, which was a 50-part daily podcast, ending on the 50th anniversary. So that's done, but the feeds are still active if you want to check those out. And the other big one I'm doing... uh, as of probably in the past by the time this comes out as of December 31st 2014 I'm launching the unofficial 75 greatest marvels countdown podcast where myself and a rotating list of guest stars will discuss the 75 greatest marvel stories as were voted by readers and published earlier this year on a weekly basis counting down from 75 to number one on June 1st 2016
1: very cool Jack, go ahead and promote all the uh, various places you are at. Sure. Uh, the place to find me the uh, mostly
2: is at firestormfan.com. It's a website dedicated to Firestorm the Nuclear Man from DC Comics. Um, I'm on all the social medias with that too. You can find me as Firestorm Fan on Twitter, Facebook, Google, Instagram, and Tumblr. Uh, also, as a part of that site, I. Part of a podcast called the Fire and Water Podcast, which is dedicated to Firestorm and Aquaman. Along that same feed, we also do shows covering Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe. We also have a Power Records show. We have a DC Role Playing Game podcast. We Oh, goodness, we've got a lot of stuff. Uh, so feel free to check out the Fire and Water Podcast. You can find that on iTunes under Fire and Water Podcast or also just simply on our sites. What else? Oh, goodness. Uh, I'm involved with the Legion of Super Bloggers which is a site dedicated to the Legion of Superheroes. I'm sort of one of their uh, public relations guys, I guess you could say. I don't post as much, but I'm there with the team doing stuff all the time. I'm also one of the driving forces of the Ultraverse Network. Nice. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Malibu's Ultraverse has its own (laughs) podcast network and blog. You can find that at UltraversePodcast.com. And we've got uh, myself and David Gutierrez do a, a podcast related to Ultraverse. So, um that's a lot of um, it's, it's something sort of new we've launched and it's a lot of fun we're having a hoot with that then oh god Sean I'm forgetting stuff aren't I true
1: um, uh, Freaks uh, I'm out there folks find me Facebook whatever yeah the Ultraverse thing I've been loving listening to those CD-Romics that the one you <laughs> recently did on Hard Case was yes I think you were apt in describing it as comparable to uh, 90s porn
3: it really you know, is
1: m- minus obviously the visuals so right. that's good in the moaning. <laughs> uh, thank goodness. But yeah, the, guys, thank you for coming on. Well, thank Sean, you. Yes, yourself. Oh, good lord. Um, I do a podcast over here at the Two True Freaks website called Just One of the Guys. It's a indexing show where I'm taking a look at the Green Lantern comics and the related comics, uh, specifically ones dealing with Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, who are my favorite Green Lanterns. Uh, I also do, of course, Who True Freaks. I also do the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror which uh, we've just uh, released the episode about Phantasm, where we're going to start covering the Don Coscarelli movies, which is going to be fun. I do that with uh, Chris Tyler, the hair metal hero, Luke Giaconetti, and Chris Honeywell. Uh, I'm on Walking Dead Wednesday with Dr. Bill Robinson and Chris Honeywell. Uh, I'm trying to think. I do the Tangent podcast, uh, Parallel (laughs) Lines, with uh, Michael Bradley. We're working through the uh, Tangent Universe uh, comics. Uh, we should be coming into the, uh, second season of that, uh, doing the books in the second run. I think we've already come out with, uh, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and probably by the time this comes out, we'll be doing Nightwing, Nightforce as well, so that'll be, that's some good stuff. We're looking forward to what's coming out with Convergence, because I know some of the Tangent characters are involved with that, and I'm trying to think of anything else that I do. Uh, oh, but listen to The Prophets, which is another, uh, show that I do over with, uh, uh, Andrew Leyland and Paul Spataro, which is a Deep Space Nine podcast over at Two Weeks. so that's where I can meet them. I'm I'm catching up on the kind of stuff that you do
2: now, I think you surpassed uh, me, uh,
1: sir. <laughs> me. I don't sleep at all.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I gave that up years
1: ago. Alright. Well uh, everyone, thanks for downloading and listening. If you have any comments about this show, please send it to Just One of the Guys podcast at gmail.com and I'll read that on the next show. Uh, thank you guys for coming to talk about this episode, and we'll catch you all next time on another episode of Who True Freaks. Bye, everyone. You guys can say goodbye as well. you Goodbye!
3: <laughs> goodbye!
1: <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> no, wait. It feels different this time.
2: <coughs> oh, nice.
3: Me?
1: (laughs) Did you have a good Christmas, by the way? Yeah, I had a good Christmas. You know, we really didn't, we did it with family. You know, we really didn't do anything, you know, major. Yeah, now you're coming in really clear. So. Mm
2: -hmm. Maybe it's that, you know, pipeline to Canada was a problem.
1: Ah, that could be it. The Canadian, the crappy Canadian internet. Funded. It's it's that funded by taxpayers and oh, that. F- Blaine, I don't know that we're ever going to be on comparable levels. Let's just put it that way, all right? <laughs> okay. Well, just just face it, you know. Blaine's always going to be. Oh my god! Hold on, I'm taking off we my. We just meet this right. guy.
2: He's from friggin' Canada. <laughs> what is that? Ugh. This would be an example of the irredeemableness. Yep. Yeah.
4: Sorry, and I do typically. Uh, kill the furnace and air conditioning while I'm recording, but I in, in Fahrenheit just, I don't know if you can hear it, it just kicked in in the background. So no, it's extra noise, but no. what, yeah, it's the, uh, what's the temperature in Fahrenheit right now outside? It's minus 25.
2: So holy shit! I gotta tell you, now I, I originally lived in Michigan, um, fairly northern Michigan. Um, not the peninsula, but I'm mean, not, not the upper peninsula, but the lower peninsula. But now that I live in, I live in Florida, by the way, now I cannot fathom living in a place where going outside could kill you. It just doesn't, it doesn't compute for me anymore. Um, so. Yeah.
4: See, and I grew up with exposed fresh freezes and freezes in X number of seconds being part of the winter weather forecast.
2: What is it called?
4: It's as part of the, the weather forecast. Yeah. In wintertime, it'll be like, you know, so it's minus 25, minus, you know, 40 with the wind chill and exposed f- flesh freezes in 30 seconds or 45 seconds or... Holy shit! Really? Really. Oh, God, dude. We get... In, in the middle of the Canadian prairies, we get temperature extremes. Um, So our range is... The, the difference between the coldest day of winter and the hottest day of summer is like a hundred and forty or 135 Fahrenheit. Lord. Wow. We will go. Well, minus 40 is where the scales match. Okay. And we are just as likely to hit minus 40 in the winter as plus 40 in the summer where zero is freezing of water.
2: Okay. Yeah. So plus 40 in Celsius, that's going to be about our 105,
4: 106
2: degrees. Yeah. Wow. It gets pretty hot. Okay.
4: Yeah, well it's you know, massive flat landmass, no major water features. It's yeah. it's highly variable.